0: In the Christian bubble. It is now time for the Cultured Christian Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is sponsored by independent financial planner Adam Peek. Join us as we provide commentary at the intersection of culture, tech, and faith. There was a Super Bowl halftime show we have to talk about speaking of justin timberlake apologizes to britney spears and janet jackson a national u.s power grid bird deaths are down a new rover is on mars nasa thinks fitbits are out of this world tim cook talks about the bigger impact than the iphone their company will have on our world teachable ai will help alexa users set up preferences And finally, one of the most important qualities God would like for us to have. All this and more coming up on today's episode of the Cultured Christian Podcast. Welcome to episode 29. Yes, we are one episode away from episode 30, which is going to be a killer episode you won't want to miss because it'll be the episode that is the same as my age. Mm, Just kidding. Plus 10. <laughs> so, episode 29, we are here. And as usual, we are going to talk about your favorite topics, hopefully, your favorite topics of culture, technology, and faith. And it is going to be another great show today. And we're going to dive in talking about the Super Bowl. Those of you who have been a part of this podcast from the beginning, you know that I am not much of a sports guy. So, you know, sports can fall under culture for sure. A lot of people, a lot of guys and gals are into football or you name the sport. And man, the last year has been a unique year in sport uh, because with the pandemic there has been some unique things that sports have all had to pivot and you know how to do sports without a big stadium filled of screaming fans and so uh, not surprisingly the Super Bowl this year was a little bit on the unique side and uh, I don't even know if I remember the teams that were playing um, mainly because I didn't watch one minute of the Super Bowl yes I am fully confessing here and Uh, living out my anti-sports reality, but part of that is I was at a student ministry program. You know, one of the things youth pastors, if you're a youth pastor you can relate to this, having a Sunday afternoon evening program The Super Bowl is always this tough thing because it comes around every year and it is a huge thing here in America. And as a pastor, as a youth pastor, it's a no-win situation. Do you cancel for the Super Bowl? That sounds terrible, right? Uh, Do you keep going and then you have volunteers and students who inevitably don't show up because they're watching the Super Bowl? Or do you try to do, which I think is one of the worst things to do, I've seen churches try to embrace the Super Bowl and either watch it or do a Super Bowl party and try to, um, you know, bring the Super Bowl into the church. And that just gets messy because of all the weird commercials and things people say and now political things that happen. Anyway, so I just want to comment on the Super Bowl halftime show um, because I watched that the day after on YouTube And as usual, I um, found some things I enjoyed, some things I didn't like. I think uh, overall, the Super Bowl um, halftime show this year was super clean. Like, we've got to give it that. There wasn't half-naked women and men dancing around, frolicking around the stage. And so that, to me, is a win. I like that when it's not uh, just some smut up there on the halftime show like we've seen in some of the past, uh, past ones. I am a fan of The Weeknd. I like a lot of their their songs. And so I enjoyed a lot of the music that was played. Uh, And as usual, I like the technology. I thought that the way that they used part of the stadium, so most of the show, if you haven't seen it, was in kind of the stands, like a part of the stadium that was not, you know, the social distancing thing. They weren't filling, obviously, every seat. So they actually used for the first time and probably ever, they use part of the stadium itself in the back as uh, part of the stage. And so I thought that was really cool. And one of the things that they continue to do with Super Bowl halftime shows is uh, the use of video and kind of different angles and lighting and things to kind of have a movement so he started way up at the top and by the end of the show he's out on the field dancing and so that's one of the things that I think is really challenging I imagine to choreograph and just as a performer to come out there and be moving around and you have cameras in front of you and cameras that you don't even see and I think again a number one the number one thing that stood out was that uh, at least reported and from what I saw from watching it, he didn't lip sync and you gotta give major props to anybody, any musician, any artist who gets up there and doesn't sing uh, and doesn't sing like that is terrible when they're just lip syncing but this guy just got out there and sang every one of his songs uh, live. And so major props to the weekend for doing that. One of the things I saw on Facebook the day after that a lot of people commented on, and maybe you uh, you as well were confused with the bandages on the heads and the dancers, you know, I saw a lot of people who were confused by that or who were... You know, kind of just jumping to conclusions and making all these these statements and things about it. But I think I mentioned in a previous episode, but for those who who didn't hear, that was actually part of something that went back to the AMAs, uh, the American Music Awards back in November. This is part of a a bigger story that The weekend kind of developed. And I thought it was really cool. It's been a long time since um, there's been that sort of thought, I think, put into building up to the Super Bowl. Obviously, he knew at that time he was going to be at the Super Bowl, and Pepsi was sponsoring, I believe, the halftime show. And so there was this whole buildup of him wearing bandages on his head, and then I think a few months back he had some like plastic surgery done to his face, and so that came out. And people were confused: Is that real? Did he really have that? I mean, it looked really bad. It was like almost like overdone plastic surgery. Um, but the whole thing was to raise awareness for drunk driving. And so the idea was: Yeah, you know, if you don't die, you're you get bandaged up. You were in an accident, that sort of thing. And so. I think that they could have done a better job of making that um, clear in the Super Bowl thing, maybe an ad right after that or some sort of PSA. But I think in some some ways it fell flat for a lot of people. They just thought this was a really weird artistic kind of thing with all the dancers at the end, especially wearing the bandages on their head. But for people like me who knew the backstory going back to the AMAs and just all the stuff that were uh, around that, I thought that was a really cool and redemptive message. So I think they did it in an artistic way. And whenever you do it in an artistic way, the danger is sometimes people miss it. Some people people miss the point of what they were trying to say uh, with that uh, artistry. So all in all, like I said, I think my take on it was I liked the weekend. I like the technology. I liked the message uh, that they were using. So all in all, I give it a thumbs up. I think for Super Bowl halftime shows, it was pretty cool. Um, they continue to use the, the wristband LED thing, like using the audience. I think that is so killer and, again, super high-tech that when you walk into the stadium, they hand you a wristband to put on, and that wristband just basically sits there until the halftime show, and then they're all synchronized, so they light up. You can see on YouTube, if you uh, search, there is some people who showed them close up, like their wristband, And the LEDs all in sync, you know, they all synchronize to the music that's playing and can do all sorts of cool images when they have drones and things from above. You see all the glowing wristbands. And so I just think, again, as a tech nerd, that that's so killer, so cool to uh, to use technology like that in a Super Bowl show. So what are your thoughts? What did you guys think about this year's uh, Super Bowl show? I know it's been a few weeks, but. Is that is it still in your mind? Do you still think about it? Thumbs up, thumbs down the uh, halftime show for 2021. All right. Speaking of Super Bowl halftime shows, let's scroll back. Let's do a little time machine to 2004, February 1st of 2004. Super Bowl, I'm not even going to try to say it because it's in Roman numerals, but it was in Houston, Texas. Who can remember Janet Jackson with Justin Timberlake? Now, right there, depending on your age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a certain moment in the uh, show that will live in infamy. And that went on to be known as the wardrobe malfunction, okay? Something on Janet Jackson's chest was ripped off and revealed her nipple to the world. And for like uh, just a few seconds, but obviously seemed like forever, on national TV with kids and adults, everybody watching, you saw some form of nudity during the halftime show of the Super Bowl with millions and millions, back then especially, the largest television audience of the year was watching. And so this is one of those moments where, you know, Super Bowls have had controversy. Super Bowl halftime shows have been notorious at times. And so I'll start, before I get into this article, I'll start by saying my take on it. I was in the group, and I guess I would even still say that I wonder if it was planned. So, you know, there's that thing in celebrities and in the world of advertisement um, that creates controversy, right? That this is a premeditated, pre planned sort of thing to draw attention to both these artists and give them credibility give them notoriety um, cause their star to rise if you will because even negative attention or sexual attention is still attention which drives money to their you know record deals and whatnot and so I, I was definitely at the time in the crowd that said, yeah, they knew what they were doing. I mean, it was clear that he was, you know, reaching and doing that. And though she responded in kind of a stunned way, this show went on blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, we go to the article written in CNN, and this is from Justin Timberlake's uh, Instagram. So every year when there's a Super Bowl halftime show, it starts the conversation going on Twitter, on Facebook. People always go back to 2004 and this infamous moment. And so I guess there's now a um, hashtag that comes up every year, and they call it Janet, Janet Jackson Appreciation Day. And some of you are laughing because that is social media, right? Like... They've always got to bring this up. It's like instead of letting it be in the past, it's always got to be brought into the future. And so Justin Timberlake decided, which, you know, on the surface, I think is a smart move. He, instead of just ignoring it, since he was the key other member of that moment, decided to respond on his uh, Instagram. And so I'll read in part uh, what he wrote. He said, I've seen the messages, tags, comments and concerns, and I want to respond. He wrote, I am deeply sorry for the times in my life where my actions contributed to the problem, where I spoke out of turn or did not speak up for what is right. And he doesn't, you know, give specific examples. He doesn't talk about things, but obviously because of the moment of the Super Bowl He's talking about Janet Jackson, right? And he also has had a a relationship with Britney Spears and that, you know, was contentious at times and has controversy surrounding it, that sort of thing. So he goes on to talk about uh, Britney Spears, Janet Jackson um, individually and how he respects them, that sort of thing. And he should have done things better. And, you know, the larger conversation happening in our society. And so Again, on the surface, celebrities responding to cultural moments, uh, even saying something against racism and sexism and all that stuff on the surface. I think these are all good things. The problem that I have with this particular one is if you go back, and this is the beauty of the internet, for better or for worse, there is an interview, which I'll link in the show notes, where Janet Jackson actually is interviewed by Oprah Winfrey uh, a few years after uh, what happened in this Super Bowl. And so it's the only time, according to this interview, so correct me if I'm wrong, but she says in the interview, this is the only time she's going to address it. And so Janet Jackson is asked point blank my assumption that it was planned. Was this planned Um, or the other assumption, which they don't say, is that he did this against you, which is kind of what would warrant an apology from Justin Timberlake. Like she didn't know it was going to happen and he ripped this thing off and revealed her. Yeah, that would be terrible that uh, a guy do that. So she says in this uh, interview with Oprah, she says that it was an accident, that it was pre-planned for him to rip off a letter or something on her chest. So this was part of, again, a scantily clad, kind of like we're going to be sexy or whatever. And if you remember a lot of past Super Bowl shows, you know, it's common that people rip off parts of their clothes. And by the end of it, you know, these women are half naked. If It's crazy, right, when you just think about where we're at in time today. But a lot of the shows were kind of that way in the sense that they started clothed, you know, and next thing you know, they're in a bikini or something. And so somewhat... You know, common, if you will, that parts of clothes were ripped off in Super Bowl shows. Kind of, again, sounds weird maybe to our younger viewers, but the idea is the point that I'm driving home is that Janet Jackson herself said that in the, you know, they obviously do a pre-show run through or whatnot. That that was something he was going to do. So this wasn't uh, I'm going to rip off her clothes and show the world her body, something which he definitely should be uh, apologizing for probably sooner than 2021 if he legitimately um, did that to her but um, she's saying no this was an accident and um, she even regrets in the interview she says she regrets apologizing for it she was apologizing i guess uh, the record company made her apologize that sort of thing but she says i regret apologizing because it was just an accident no one was wrong in the sense that it wasn't intended to become the thing that it was so Anyways, I just found that interesting when you take this article, again, somewhat of a good move. I think Justin Timberlake being a sensitive guy and being a celebrity, he wanted to step into the moment that included him on social media. But I just wonder if an apology was really needed and necessary. And maybe I'm missing the point. Maybe he is apologizing. He doesn't get specific about it. So maybe he is just apologizing for even the appearance of... Being uh, this way of ripping a woman's you know something off of a woman's chest to, to reveal her to the world expose her so maybe even just the appearance is what he's apologizing for but I think my assumption was that you don't need to apologize if it's something that you guys were all um, aware of what was going to happen and then maybe there was an accident and things just kind of went the way that they went so. I don't know. What do you guys think, especially you guys who were there watching it as adults or younger people? Do you think that the Super Bowl halftime show in 2004 was pre-planned, premeditated to the full extent like they wanted the controversy they wanted to draw attention to? uh this moment in the super bowl i don't know i'd love to hear your comments it's definitely an interesting conversation that apparently continues on janet jackson uh, hashtag janet jackson appreciation day all right switching gears majorly let's talk about the u.s national power grid exciting conversation here But it is definitely relevant uh, this week because just over a week ago here in Oregon, we had a wind slash ice storm that knocked out power. So for the first time in my uh, community here, the power was knocked out and it was knocked out for me for three and a half days now, three and a half days stinks you know it's terrible to not have power for a day or just an evening but when you go on days without power and for me i have an electric um, water heater so i ran out of hot water and in my community at my church there were people who had no power for 12 13 days like imagine all of the things some of them were on wells so they couldn't even get water they couldn't flush their toilet So it's not just about heating, it's not just about food, all that kind of stuff, refrigeration, but there was just so many things that went wrong and so There's a very fresh example here in my town where I live and then coupled with that my friends down in Texas uh, over 4 million people were knocked out uh, of power for days if not a week there because of uh, this cold snap that temperatures got down to like five degrees in Dallas Texas. I mean just that infrastructure down there is not set up for that kind of cold cold temperatures and so. It brings back memories for me of 2003 again we're kind of living in the early 2000s today with the Super Bowl incident we just talked about and then in 2003 there was a major blackout of the north uh, eastern part of the country over 45 million people in eight US states were without power and if you live during that time it was in August. Um, it was hot. It was one of those dog days of summer in Michigan. I lived in Metro Detroit, and I can just remember being without air conditioning. We went and stayed uh, at my grandmother's trailer because she, for some reason, was this uh, little block, this little area that got power back, and so we went over there for a few days because of uh, her having air conditioning on, but the The question is, the problem, let's say it that way, the problem is that the United States, again, started in 1776 and, you know, relatively... Um, young country when it comes to world history, but as far as our infrastructure goes, we haven't been doing a good job. Most of our infrastructure goes back to the 50s and 60s and has not been touched, whether you're talking about roads, bridges, uh, power grids, obviously, uh, power plants, There's all sorts of infrastructure things that desperately need upgrading, and nine times out of ten, they're not upgraded because people don't want to see their taxes raised, and I understand that because a lot of times our taxes are raised for other things, we already feel like we're taxed to death. Uh, Maybe you don't trust your local government. They took your money and used it in corrupt ways. You see it um, being used in ways that you don't agree with. And so, yeah, when they talk about raising taxes to build bridges and update infrastructure, you're like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. So we've had years upon years and Republicans and Democrats, this is not a uh, anti one side of the aisle. Both sides have blame here as far as not upgrading and so there was an article um, last year so it is a little bit uh, dated now but I think it's still relevant there is a bunch of uh, nerds tech nerds out there who are moving to or asking us to consider moving to a national power grid and again this was brought up with Texas Texas is pretty isolated and just looking at this map I'll I'll share the article again in the show notes But you can see that Texas is on its own thing, and a lot of the states, uh, it's one of few states in our country that kind of have their own system that's separate from the rest of the country. The other parts of our country, like where I lived in the Midwest and also here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, have kind of multi-state connections, and so there are regions, if you will, of power and so this article is saying we need to connect all those regions and states and get to a national power grid and and in this article they they bring up five reasons which if you read through it I think is is pretty sound. They say that, number one, if we unite the grid, it will unlock renewable energy potentials. So the idea is that areas that have hydroelectric or really windy areas or lots of sunny areas for solar panels, that that can kind of spread the wealth, if you will, across the country. So that's that's one of their reasons. Secondly, it will reduce greenhouse gas emissions kind of connected to that first one. Um, Then we get into the third one, which I think kind of, again, may interest you, it interests me, which is it will save consumers money. And they estimate $47 billion a year could be saved through increased efficiency and cheaper renewable energy. Um, And then number four is the one that I kind of just spoke of the need for, which is it will make the grid more reliable. It'll just make it more reliable because the idea is if you're having trouble in one area, you can pull energy to another area that's, you know, not struggling. So if one area is hit with a natural disaster or a power outage, there can be ways that you can shift the power around. Um, And then finally, their last reason is they say that it would create jobs. And amen to that, because we still have a large uh, unemployment situation here in our country, largely due to COVID. And so I'm a big, you know, sometimes being a conservative guy, you know, um, we aren't often known as being behind some of these uh, infrastructure problems and projects but i think it's extremely clear just the roads that i drive on the bridges that are crumbling seeing all these people without power um, there's just so many ways that we need to have a strong and robust plan to deal with infrastructure in this country and i think with all the new technologies I'm not a all I'm not all in on this renewable energy. I think that's part of the story. I think that's part of the solution. I think we've got to have nuclear, we've got to have some coal, we've got to use natural gas. I mean there is a diverse uh, way that we can tackle this problem. but I don't know, I thought the article brought up some good points, some good ideas and man, if there is not a relevant, a conversation starter as we look into Texas. And I know there's uh, stuff happening in Washington and the power commissioner, I think is his name, uh, his title from Texas is kind of under heat, um, under heat, look at that pun there. <laughs> but he's facing, you know, he's in trouble for the way that they responded. But I, I don't know. I don't know if they could have responded well if they're isolated. And not connected to the uh, region where other um, power companies could have uh, helped with the load, especially as power uh, needs came back online, they could have um, they could have went to a complete blackout is what I heard. And so that would have helped with that possibility is kind of spreading that out over multiple power plants and districts versus just in Texas. So anyways, what are your thoughts? Should we move to a national power grid? What, what would be the downsides of that? What sort of things would we uh, not want? They talk in the article about the positives and the reasons why we should move to a national power grid. But what do you think? Are there any potential negatives to unifying the power grids here in this country? Finally, one more story related to power. I just had to connect these stories together. There's a story over on ARS uh, Technica that bird deaths are down 70% after painting wind turbine blades a different color. So most times when you see a wind turbine, they're painted white. And so when that thing gets spinning... Apparently, birds have a hard time seeing that, and there is just uh, literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of birds are being murdered by these wind turbines. According to an article from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, calculated that approximately 300,000 birds were killed by wind turbines, in 2015 now fast forward six years think of how many more wind turbines have been uh, built across the world and so <clears throat> norway a country which you may not associate with um, a lot of news coming out and a lot of inventions being made. Sorry to those of you from Norway. But they did a nine-year study. So this isn't something over just like three, four months or anecdotal. But they've done a long nine-year study and they noticed a 70% drop in bird deaths and the thing that's really unique about it is is they, they're saying you just have to paint one of the three wings of the wind turbine. You, typically they have three, you know, wings on it. Um, blades, I think is a better way to say it. All you have to do is paint one of them black and that causes the birds are able to see it and then they can, you know, fly around it, that sort of thing. It becomes, I guess, a big black circle in front of them. And so... I don't know what you think about wind power. It's definitely something that, in windy areas, when I drove across the country moving from Michigan to Oregon, in the middle of the country, these vast, wide open spaces, there were a lot of wind turbines. And i kind of see that that makes sense just like hydroelectric dams in big huge rivers fast-moving water like that makes sense you generate power by fast-moving water and rivers i know there's downsides to that in in nature same thing here you know when you have a massive area where wind is just constantly blowing in a strong fashion it makes sense that we would harness the wind and generate power from that and so, um, yeah, I don't know. I just thought this was a, an interesting article and it's it's sometimes I think the most simplest solution that you didn't think of right at the start that solves a problem, you know? It's like, oh my gosh, these birds are just, hundreds of thousands of them are dying, are being murdered from these wind wind turbines. And instead of just eliminating the wind turbine, you actually just paint one of the blades black and suddenly the birds aren't dying. They're able to avoid that, so. Anyways, I found it interesting and just thought I'd share it with y'all. Moving on to our tech section, we have some more space news. Uh, Back in July of last year, 2020, we sent another rover, Perseverance. NASA sent Perseverance over to Mars. And just this past week, we finally get touchdown and successfully a touchdown. And we get a whole new treasure trove of video and pictures from the surface of Mars and probably the best yet. I mean, in so many ways, there are so many uh, videos and pictures that have come back and I maybe even more is still coming. But if you haven't watched the video of the landing of this thing, you have to stop what you're doing. Hit pause on this. Go over and Google search it or... Click over on uh, on the show notes and watch this video. I mean, it seriously looks like something in a movie now. You are now watching movie-quality uh, video of almost every angle. They have a video camera attached to the bottom of the rover as it's landing. They have a video camera going up from the rover to the... Um, the apparatus, I forget what they call it, I apologize here, but there's a thing, that, like a crane, if you will, that drops down the rover, and then it has a video going up from that thing to the uh, parachute, and shows the parachute full of air as it's dropping. That is just so cool, and of course when it touches down you see the the Martian surface, just the dust and the moving of rocks, and it is just so cool. To think that this isn't a Hollywood set, maybe there's some conspiracy theorists listening, and you think it is, but I think it's actually Mars, the surface of Mars that we're looking at, and as usual, there is even more going on. They have a microphone. And you can hear, we had this once before on the podcast, but uh, again, they have a microphone that records the sound of the rover, so you hear that, and then they actually used audio uh, editing software to edit out the sound of the rover, and you can hear wind blowing on the surface of Mars. That is just so cool to think about how far away that is, and this little robot is driving around right now as we speak. One of the um, goals, they're doing all sorts of tests as you would imagine, but one of the stated goals of this particular rover is to collect rock samples. That's something that we have not done yet. NASA has not been taken, been able to take a rock or multiple rocks from the surface of Mars and bring them back successfully to Earth. And so that is part of this mission's goals. Um, So I can't wait to see what they find in the uh, rocks and what sort of things they bring back. And so there also was another story. I don't think I have the article here. But I heard about it uh, through another podcast or a news source that each time they bring a rover to the planet, they're also bringing neat things from Earth, like symbolic things or things to celebrate something on Earth or to honor something on Earth. And so I believe um, they brought pieces of the World Trade Center to honor those who died and on 9-11 and this time they brought a plaque um, with a image of like the medical what's the word I'm looking for like the symbol of the snakes wrapping around the um, gosh I can't think of the name of it but it, it, it's the symbol of like medicine and doctors and health and so it's uh, brought to the planet to honor those it's dedicated to those who have worked as first responders uh, in the medical community to fight COVID. And so I thought that was a neat little tidbit that I, I don't know if you heard about that. It, it wasn't a big news item. I think there's so much again going on in our world. Sometimes these little stories get missed, but Perseverance brought that plaque, brought that thing to, uh, to the surface of Mars to honor those who work in the uh, healthcare field. And so I thought that was, that was neat. I like when they think to do stuff like that. Now, how many of you have a Fitbit? I was a Fitbit user for many years, probably like almost going on 10 years before I got an Apple Watch. I was a big Fitbit user, and back when it was kind of seemed like everybody I knew had a Fitbit, they had the market, they were the step counting device that everybody had. I thought it was awesome. I love being on there and challenging my friends and family and keeping your steps above 10,000 and tracking your sleep and all that stuff. And uh, NASA has actually decided to give uh, astronauts, those in the pilot program, Um, and their employees, so not just uh, astronauts, but also those who are in support of those NASA crews, those astronaut crews, they're giving them, a thousand of their employees, uh, Fitbits, specifically the Charge 4, Fitbit Charge 4. And one of the reasons, there's multiple things that they're doing, as, as often with these programs, but one of them connects to, I believe, our last episode where we talked about the Apple Watch being able to Um, find potentially COVID in people based on certain markers, uh, certain health markers. And so that's part of the reason why they are implementing these uh, trackers on their um, astronauts and flight crews and, you know, NASA employees is so they can track if you have something that could be uh, COVID related. And so here's a statement from uh, Fitbit, uh, the general manager of Fitbit Health Solutions, it says this, it says the pandemic has underscored the critical role that Fitbit can play in providing much needed support to help people sleep better, eat better, and have more and, and, and move more and take control of their health and wellness, as well as the potential to identify illness from specific health metrics, which is essential Uh, Especially important now that COVID-19 of the COVID-19 crisis, we're proud to work with NASA to support its employees and give them access to Fitbit products and services to help them better understand and manage their health and well-being during the crisis. And so I don't know about you, but I think it's cool. Number one, I think it's interesting to think that a program or a company, an agency like NASA that is literally putting people in space and rockets don't have their own tracker. They're using Fitbits. The same thing you can buy today on Amazon or Best Buy is what our astronauts are using to track their heart rate and their sleep and you know, how many steps they take, as well as some of this COVID potential markers. So I just found that kind of interesting and cool. So shout out to those of you Fitbit users. Um, what a cool thing that Fitbit is going to literally be part of space and in outer space. A couple Apple-related stories here. I mean, what would our episode be without some Apple news? The largest company, one of the largest companies on the planet, tech companies. And, uh, yeah, so this is an interview, according to Tim Cook, uh, the CEO of Apple. He talks about something that is bigger, their their most lasting legacy, what he thinks that will be. And there can be a lot of contenders for that. I mean, you think about the Mac, uh, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, uh, the Apple Watch. I mean, they have created l- fundamentally game-changing Uh, technologies and devices. And then you could even think about privacy, how they, especially in today's day and age, are standing up against Facebook and Google and they're really trying to be the privacy minded uh, tech company. And so, no, it's none of those. Tim Cook is not focused on those or saying those will be their most lasting legacy, you know, 100 years from now kind of thing. What will they be known for? It's none of those things. And so as CEO of the most valuable company on planet Earth, he says that the issue will be in the health and wellness area, the health and wellness area. And so that's why you're starting to see more and more um, device focused health related stuff. So you've got the Apple Watch, of course, even your your iPhone um, can do these things with health related stuff and so it kind of connects back to the Fitbit story about people's health but just closing your rings and Fitness Plus and now the COVID stuff and tracking diseases and And being part of, there's a lot of opt-in programs from universities you can do these studies now that are connected to your devices, your Apple devices, that in the future could help um, eradicate diseases or help come up with cures or medical treatments that drastically change uh, people's lives. And so... I thought that was really cool that Apple is focused on. I've told you, I think it was two episodes ago now, you know, the greatest technology is the kind of technology that improves or saves human lives. I mean, that's just, how how can you argue with that, right? Like technology that does those things is incredible. It's awesome and we should all be applauding that. So I don't know. I thought that was an interesting take. Who knows what other things Tim Cook could have said, but he is really moving the company in a direction towards being a healthcare uh company, being a tech healthcare company. And it'll be interesting to see as we hear rumors of the Apple car or we hear Uh, the VR or the AR glasses, sorry, that are coming out, the visor, that could be next year, Um, how these devices will also be connected to that mission and vision of health and wellness and how they're going to continue to move uh, forward, move the ball forward and be the leader when it comes from the tech world in health and wellness. Now, speaking of Apple, one device or one uh, rumor that I've been hearing over a year now that I've been anticipating is something called AirTags. I think we've talked about it a few times on the podcast, but there was a leak just this week that is saying next month, March, a few weeks from now, that Apple is going to have an event and they're going to release a or announce a new iPad Pro. And at that event, they're finally going to announce AirTags. And AirTags, if you don't remember, is a tile... Uh, Apple version of Tile where you're going to be able to have this little circular kind of quarter size or maybe a little bigger than a quarter uh, device that you can put in your purse, you can put in your backpack, you can put in any place that you typically lose something. I assume there'll be ways that you can attach it to your keys. And then using your phone, your iPhone there will be a way that you can track it. So you know that you left your wallet or your bag at work or you left it at the gym or you left it somewhere yeah you know somewhere else depending on what the item is. And the cool thing is I believe it's the W1 chip. It's not just using uh, wireless technology, but it's using this special W1 chip. And so it's supposed to be even more accurate than something like GPS. and so, you'll be able to walk into let's say like your living room and, it, and if you have a tile right now your tile device which I had one about a year and a half ago the battery ran out and so I was waiting for this cause I don't want another app on my phone. I like it integrated to the phone that I have and so I haven't bought a new one but if you have a tile you can know that it's in your house. Basically the the location will show you the lo, you know, the general location and then using the depending on the tile device you have you could make it beep so you could listen for it you know and kind of find that last few uh, feet away but as i understand the air tags i know it's not been announced but the stuff the patents and the uh, things the leaks that have come out you're going to be able to use that w1 chip in your newer iphone and basically it's going to have a balloon i think some of the leaks have shown like some sort of balloon you'll be able to look through your camera lens um, in some sort of app, I assume there'll be an app related to AirTags, and you'll see where it is in your room. So it'll be like it's over here behind the couch kind of thing. You won't even have to use noise to find it. It's going to show you where in time and space uh, you're lost Uh, AirTag is. So I'm super excited. I think that it's needed. And like I just said, I have not bought a new tile. I've kind of been waiting and hoping. I'm not typically the type of person who loses things, but I think high... You know, expensive things are often in my backpack and so I'd love to just have one in my backpack in case when I'm traveling or just something you know gets stolen or swiped. It'd be nice to have a tracking device uh, like that. So would you guys be interested, those of you Apple users, I think it's only going to work with Apple devices, so sorry Android users. But if you're an Apple person, do you see yourself getting an AirTag? Let's say it's $20, $30, would you get a little um, device to put in your purse or your, um, I don't know, things that you don't want to lose? Do you see value in that? Finally, in tech, let's move to another big tech company you may have heard of called Amazon. And we're going to talk about uh, one of my favorite topics, which is the Alexa devices and Amazon Echoes, which I have Echoes in every room of my house. I am a big fan of the Amazon Echo and just having a smart home. That's kind of my center hub for all the things that I do in my house, smart home related. And one of the reasons why I selected that group, I mean, I could have went with Google, I could have went with other smart home, even Apple's Siri could have been my smart home controller. Um, but what I like about Amazon and Alexa specifically is that it's always improving. They have a department, uh, the research division at uh, Amazon that is constantly teaching and improving uh amazon alexa's ability to understand you and just improving her capabilities like it exists in the cloud and so that's uh, basically your echo is a a microphone to the internet and it's so it's always improving and i've seen that over the years i've had echoes for years now and it's just getting better and better which if you're a terminator watcher that can be a little scary that these ais are getting smarter and smarter Um, But this article from a few months back here in December talks about the teachable AI that is coming in the next few months to uh, your Echo devices. And so the idea is that it is going to learn based on your responses and then in the future, remember those responses. So it just gets better and better and more conversational because that's the end goal is that, you know, when you watch these, you know, Blade Runner or Dune movies, right, or even back into Star Trek and stuff, when you talk to a computer, the end game is to talk to it as if it's a human, and it respond like it's a human. It does and interacts with you just like a human would. That's the golden, you know, that's what we're aiming for. And so here's some examples. In the case of Teachable AI, the article says... If a customer says something like, Alexa, set the living room light to study mode, the assistant might now respond, I don't know what study mode is, can you teach me? Alexa will extract a definition from the customer's answer, and when they later make the same or similar request, reply with the learned action. Another example from the article says that Alexa might not automatically know what a customer's preferred reading setting is, say 40% brightness, when they say, Alexa, set the light to my reading mode. Using Teachable AI, the assistant assistant will ostensibly learn these definitions and and responding actions and associate them with a particular account for future use. And so, again, I'm super excited when I read these articles because it just tells me that, again, I've purchased the right device for my home because it's just going to continue to improve. And those of you who find this stuff scary and you don't want any of these listening devices in your home, I don't think I'm ever going to convince you of their value. But for those of us who do use them, these are really cool and helpful additions because it tells you that these devices are future proof they're just going to continue to learn and be easier to talk to and hopefully 10 years from now again it will be just as similar as talking to a human you won't have to think of because right now when i want something to happen in my smart home sometimes i have to learn a specific phrase that's basically like a password for a lack of better terms that gets the gets her to understand what i'm saying and does the command does the action creates it and so with this teachable ai It's going to learn how you and I talk and create the action from that by asking questions. And so that's super cool. I'm excited to see how this evolves. And just over the next few years, I just see it getting more and more uh, easy to work with these AI based devices. as featured on episode 22 our podcast sponsor is Adam Peak my friend and independent financial planner are you concerned that you aren't doing enough for retirement have you always wondered if you're missing out on the retirement plan offered through work reach out to adam to help find the answers to these questions you can reach adam through multiple channels by going to adampeak.com that's adampeak with an a.com Securities offered through Sigma Financial Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. Adam Peak, 300 Parkland Plaza, Ann Arbor, Michigan 48116, phone number 810-522-8169 or acpeak@sigmarep.com. at sigmarep.com. In our faith section this week, I want to share with you uh, one quality, perhaps the greatest quality that I think God is looking for from us. Those of us who identify as Christians, those of us as Christ followers, I think this is the greatest, if not one of the greatest qualities that he's looking for. And so we're going to start by looking at a familiar passage, maybe a familiar passage for you. And it is in Luke chapter 10. It's uh, Jesus speaking, and he tells a parable. Uh, And let's see here. It starts in verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. It says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which, again, side note here, is about a 17-mile trek. I assume by foot, maybe he's on donkey, but 17 miles, and it's also a 3,000 foot down. So the elevation drops 3,000 feet down. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. He's like, peace out. I'm going on the far side. I'm uh, getting away from you. Uh, verse 32. So too, a Levite, another religious guy who served in the, in the temple, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by also on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came to where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey. He's got skin in the game, guys. He's literally putting him on his own donkey in his own Uber, or better said, in his own car, not an Uber. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took down two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. In verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And that's Jesus again asking uh, the disciples. And so, We have three uh, characters here. Besides the guy that's been robbed on the side of the road, literally clothes taken off his back, uh, taken his wallet, he's alone. And we have three characters that pass by. We have the priest. We have the Levite, also known as a temple assistant. So these were the guys who helped out the priests in doing the job of uh, running the temple. Religious men and women. And then we have the Samaritan. So my question is, why do you think the first two didn't stop to help the poor guy? Or why wouldn't you? Let's, let's put ourselves into the story. If, if we're people who attend church, some of us lead in church roles, why might we not stop? What would cause us to not help a fellow human being who's been robbed, beat up, bloodied and naked on the side of the road? What causes us to go on the other side, to just avoid this person? And if you're like me, this story is pretty relevant, right? There there are times where you are seeing someone broken down. Their car is broke down on the side of the road. You're seeing that it's raining outside. You're seeing that their hood's open. What are some reasons, maybe you were taught by your parents or in your community, why would you go along the other side? Why would you just pass them instead of offering any sort of help? I think some of the common answers that I would give and that people uh, have given to this, to this question, the first one would be, I'm just busy Right, The priest, the the Levite, the temple assistant, they got things to do. They are heading to Jerusalem as well. They have things to do in the temple. They have busy lives. Can you all relate to that? I mean, we all have somewhere we're going. I don't generally get into my car anymore and just go for a joy ride. We generally have a destination. We're on our way to somewhere. And it inconveniences us to stop and help someone. It, it will make us late to that appointment, that doctor's appointment. It'll make us late to to meet that friend for coffee or for dinner or to pick up the kids from school. I mean, we are busy people. So I think that's one of the common responses why we might not stop. The second one that comes up for me and and I think is very relevant in this particular passage is that they didn't want to be associated with a Samaritan or I'm sorry the Samaritan was willing to be associated but the person who was on the side of the road the scripture commentary that I read is Probably somebody that is not of Jewish descent or maybe is themselves a Samaritan. It's someone that they didn't want to associate with. The priest didn't want to be seen helping this kind of person. And so, again, what's the 2021 example for us? Who is that person on the side of the road, maybe with a different skin color? Maybe with a car broke down uh, of a certain year, you know, just looking at a car, you kind of make judgments about what kind of person that would be. Um, Who would you stop for? Maybe flip the question around. Is there a certain type of a certain gender, a certain color skin, a certain type of car that you would be willing to pull over for? You'd feel more comfortable to um, to help this person out. And so I want to focus in as again this is kind of just a short uh, a short chat today but I think still one that is hopefully profound to nudge us to be more like the Samaritan who ultimately did stop what was the quality that this person had that I would argue God is looking for in us remember we started by talking about this greatest quality one of the greatest qualities that I think God is looking from all of us what is this quality that the Samaritan had but the Levite and the priest did not I don't think it's about perfection I don't think it's about being perfect I don't think it's our talents I don't think it's our job title I think it has to do simply for being available God is looking for men and women who are simply available, available to Him and available to others, His or her fellow man. And so, my question to you is in your current situation in life, I don't know what job you have, I don't know how many members of your family you care for, how many friends, you know, how many nights a week you're out, all those things, but. I want to ask you, are you available most days of your life to be used by God? I mean, is there enough margin? Is there enough free space in your schedule? If we popped open your Apple calendar, are we? is there enough time in there? Is there enough space in your schedule? Or would you be willing to make space if you have a busy schedule to do something that God is asking you to do? I hope the answer would be yes. I'm convicted, again, as I go through this conversation, that a lot of times I am too busy. I am running from appointment to appointment. And I also have to acknowledge that I do inside of myself have prejudice. I have preconceived ideas of the men and women I might see on the side of the road, and that would cause me to pass along on the other side, just like Jesus Uh, talks about in this parable. And so my hope for you and my prayer for you is that we would be known as a people by our availability. Part of loving people, you know, it talks in, in John about they will know we are Christians, they will know we are believers ultimately by our love. But I would argue that the only way we love people is when we're available. Can you love someone that you're not available for or to? I think it's really challenging to stretch that. If, if you're not available to answer that friend's call when they're calling at 1130 at night and you're just getting ready for bed or you're off to sleep, you know, it's it's availability is is closely correlated with love. We have to be available both to our friends, to our family and even to strangers as scripture is teaching us here, even to our fellow human being who is ultimately our neighbor in that they are human beings created in the image of God with great value. And so I encourage you today and this week and this month to look for those opportunities to be available, to lean into even when it's uncomfortable, and just answer that call. Whatever God is asking of you, is asking of us, let's be people who are known by our availability. And once again, we have come to the end of another episode, episode 29 of the Cultured Christian Podcast. This month, we are celebrating our one-year anniversary. Can you believe it? We have been around the block for one entire year, 365 days. So we have a special one-year anniversary episode coming up next. And as we prepare that and kind of put together that episode, we'd love to hear from you again. What stands out over the last... 12 months, what episode still is in your memory banks? What guest was your favorite guest? We'd love to hear that if you'd send us an email, culturedchristians at gmail.com. But also, as we look to the future, what are some topics that you're hoping, man, I hope in 2021, they would talk about this, fill in the blank. I'd love to see this guest on your show. Maybe it's not you. Maybe you're too shy or you don't really feel like you have something to share on the show as a guest. But I bet you know someone. I bet someone in your group of friends or your circle of influence could be a great uh, episode here on the podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And as always, we hope you enjoyed this and all of our episodes on the Cultured Christian Podcast. Please join the conversation over on our Reddit. Also like and interact with us on our Instagram and Facebook page. Lastly, if you have feedback or topic ideas, as I just mentioned, please email us at culturedchristians@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And as always, we look forward to seeing you in the next one.